Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am coming to you from sunny, warm New York City. In Washington, D.C., we are joined by Rosa Brooks, uh, who is somewhere. Where are you, Rosa? Hi, David. I'm in Alexandria. Oh, beautiful Alexandria. And uh, Is that in Egypt? There is an Alexandria in Egypt. You could hear there (laughs) David Sanger. This is not the same one. (laughs) Yeah, David Sanger, (laughs) who's very cosmopolitan, also in Washington, D.C., and we have Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund, also in Washington, D.C. And yeah. we have Ed Luce at Stately Luce Manor, um, uh, who uh, will represent all of Europe for us today, since Corey Shockey chose precisely the moment that Donald Trump is in London to go to Singapore, which seems smart to me. Kind I of suspicious. Very yeah. suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Ed, what kind of reports are you getting from your friends back in the UK? The president says he's getting a very warm reception. <laughs> he's um, he's going by chopper everywhere, so he's missing the the big protests. Um, they're they're said to get two three hundred thousand tomorrow morning, um, and it's going to be addressed by our favourite politician Jeremy Corbyn, amongst other people. Um, who is amongst those boycotting uh, the state banquets um, uh, at Buckingham Palace, um, the leader of the Labour Party, the leader of the Liberal Democratic Party, uh, Meghan Markle of, is, is, is um, looking after her baby. Um, but it's, it's quite unusual to have two out of three of the main party leaders. Well, not unusual, it's unique, um, refusing to attend a state dinner for a state visit for a U.S. president. It's um, unheard of. So um, he might be feeling the warmth, but I'm, uh, you know, maybe it feels different in a chopper um, going between the American embassy and, and Buckingham Palace Garden. But um, um, I, don't think, um, I don't think the preponderance of British opinion feels at all warmly towards him. And of course, baby blimp, baby blimp will be floating above, above London tomorrow and will be moved to Ireland later in the week, where um, Trump will be staying at his golf course in Doonbeg um, and um, presumably being shielded from the multiplicity of protests that I hear are being planned in Ireland. Well, they also... Wait, as I, uh, I, wait yeah, go on. can I just ask a quick question, Ed? I, I saw in the newspaper it said that Meghan Markle is on, quote, maternity leave. Do you get to be on maternity leave for being a, a duchess or whatever she is? No, I think she conveniently invented that category for the moment. Um, 
And, <laughs> That's a good one. Um, presumably that leave will end on Wednesday when Trump leaves. Yeah, well, and, and can I ask a question as well? Because isn't it true that FT journalists also, when trying to get around uh, London traffic and avoid protesters, take the FT helicopter between different buildings? <laughs> no, but I tell you what, I have availed of this service um, a couple of times that the FT's booked for me of getting on the back of a motorbike and you're put into the radio touch with the person that you're clinging on to and it takes you through London traffic at great speed. Um, oh it's my God! Scary, but it's really effective. <laughs> it's really effective. Do they give you a um, helmet? They give you a helmet, and you talk to the driver. Mine. They was give a you a helmet if they SAS like you. Guy. He was a former SAS guy, you know, like tough guy, and um, he was quite a good commentator on the traffic as we sort of skirted, you know, had narrow misses by a matter of inches and nanoseconds on the way to my destination. Wouldn't the, the image of the president that. on the back of a motorcycle avoiding London traffic be just like the greatest image ever? <laughs> it would be a great image. Um, Evelyn, you know, as a kind of, you know, somebody who's, who's worked in security-related uh, areas for a while, one of the things that we've heard about the Trump visit is that they have banned the making of milkshakes in the United Kingdom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I mean that that says something too about uh, the the hospitality that was awaiting Trump, doesn't it? Yes, I'm sure they're still um, making Big Macs and things like that that he likes to order. Um, you know, although I guess he'll be expected to eat um, what he's served at these state dinners. Um, yeah, we don't. I don't think we, we. He would not be able to handle the milkshake episode and his security detail would not survive with just a snide comment the way uh, Farange's did. Yeah. I don't know if I, you know, if I were in the secret service, if I'd be willing to sacrifice my suit for a milkshake and for this president, but that's another, that's, that, <laughs> that, that's, 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 that's another issue. David, um, you've been covering, you know, uh, international relations since, um, uh, Jefferson, the <laughs> Secretary of State. Um, and um, I, I was just wondering, you know, we find this all kind of amusing, you know, and, they, you know, there's Trump and, it, and you know, the Queen goes, uh, sorry, you can't stay at Buckingham Palace. We're having a renovation, even though there's 52 guest rooms in Buckingham Palace. And the people are projecting insulting images everywhere and there's a blimp and there's insults and so forth. Does this matter in any material way, do you think? Well, it doesn't, but you know, who can blame her? Because even if you walk through a little bit of the construction, you know what's going to happen. All that construction dust is going to be on your shoes as you go through the other 52 rooms. Oh. Um, right. Um, now, I mean, I think the symbolism is pretty remarkable. The last time that he did a big visit to London, you'll remember that they kept him outside of London and he just helicoptered around and stayed away from any place that they um, that you could have seen protesters and so forth. I think for the state visit, it was considered sort of impossible to get away with this. I think the really interesting issue is is this. So the president flies to London and he's tweeting the whole way on Air Force One in his, you know, still his territory. Uh, he's calling the mayor of London a total loser. Uh, he's doing various other uh, insults along the way. 
my guess is, and from what we've seen so far, is that once he's on the Queen's territory and he's in her presence, he actually sort of behaves the way you might expect a president to behave. Um, because there is this somewhat strange reverence uh, that Ellen Barry of our, our London bureau chief wrote about that he has for the queen that comes from his um, upbringing by his mother, who was her, herself, of course, a, a Scottish immigrant. Interesting um, that he's the son of an immigrant. Um, and uh, that he has sort of always kind of revered the pomp and ceremony around the British royal family. So my guess is he'll do pretty well until he's back in the presence of the ordinary mortals of politicians, and then the insults probably start again. Um, yeah, um, Rosa, one of the first things that he did, uh, which is uh, uh, unusual as diplomatic techniques go, is he tweeted an insult calling the mayor of London a stone-cold loser just as he was landing in London. Um, and uh, he's, I, This is outrageous because, among other things, he's clearly getting all of his insults mixed up. You can be a stone-cold killer, but I've never heard of a stone-cold loser. Well, he uses the term stone-cold a lot due to his time, I think, in the wrestling business. Um, with the, Wasn't it stone-cold Steve Austin or something like that? But in any event... <laughs> um, uh, but... He, you know, he started this off with with an insult, but that has led to other repercussions. Um, and uh, you know, he's then going from here off to Europe, um, where it's got to be awkward for him as well. I mean, he there is a theory that he's doing these things um, to show how presidential he is, uh, to help lay the foundation for the announcement of his reelection kickoff later this month. And I'm wondering how you think that's going. Well, as usual, um, I think it's all in the eye of the beholder, unfortunately, right? I, I think that the clear majority of the American people think he's acting like an embarrassing buffoon and we wish he would come home and at least limit his buffoonery to our domestic audiences and not embarrass us all over the world. Um, However, I imagine that his his uh, minority but stalwart minority of the American public who remains his supporters thinks that he is he's really showing those, you know, hoity toity Europeans who's boss by insulting them and generally being a jerk to them and hooray for hooray for America. So, I, you know, I think that this is likely to uh, go down with the European audiences the same way it goes down with 60% with, uh, of the American public, 95% of American Democrats, and 85% of American independents, which is to say very, very badly. Um, will it in and of itself do any additional damage to America's global image uh, or to Trump's prospects for re-election? Probably not, because it's so much of a piece with his overall behavior in any case. Um, well, you know, uh, Ed, one of the things that, that Trump uh, uh, has tweeted out, and he's tweeted out so many, um, uh, was a comment saying that uh, things are going great and everybody loves him. And as soon as, you know, the UK gets itself out from under the burden of being part of the EU, the US will negotiate a trade deal with them. And that'll be terrific. 
And I'm just wondering what you think of the prospects of that trade deal. And he also said that it would um, it could be wrapped up in a, in a matter of months, um, which I think is um, completely infeasible. Um, uh, and even if it were, um, it would um, meet an immediate roadblock um, with Nancy Pelosi, Rich Neal and others, because they've said anything that compromises a Good Friday agreement, um, which is the only scenario in which Britain could negotiate a deal with the United States is if they did have a hard Brexit. Anything that, um, you know, sent Ireland up in smoke and, and um, reimposed a border there between the Republic and the North um, would meet a dead end in the Democratic House. And so, um, you know, he can say you can have a trade deal. He can say, look, you should just leave on October the 31st, on Halloween, leave, leave under my good friend Boris Johnson, who will make a great prime minister. Um, so, of course, he is intervening there. Again, as he did on his last visit to Britain in in um, British politics, uh, he can say all this, but uh, you know it, it, nobody actually believes it. Um, he, he also said, um, in addition to Britain should leave and have a hard Brexit uh, on Halloween, that it should repudiate the fifty billion dollar severance um, uh, amount negotiated with the European Union and take it to court. He's he said this before. Uh, and um, it is a complete fantasy. There is no court that Britain can take the EU to um, that would address anything that Trump's talking about. He's talking as though this is some kind of a, you know, a real estate deal gone sour, and you're basically trying to take Deutsche Bank through the ringer. Um, this is obviously not, not, not at all comparable to a situation of a sovereign nation leaving um, a, a club of sovereign nations. Um, so there is, a, you know, there is, there is that side to this visit. Um, you know, I, I agree with David, my work with Evelyn, Rosa and David, that it's not hugely significant in the grand scheme of things. It probably won't play, um, negatively or positively in his reelection campaign. Um, but this is just another sort of, um, another shift into, into, into Europe's body. Um, that Trump is plunging, and and it that's significant. That's significant. He keeps doing this. These aren't gaffes. This isn't accidental. This isn't because he can't help himself. It is uh, the product of a a, a a strategy to disunite Europe, and that's um, that is shocking. It's shocking coming from an American president. Ed, do you remember when Barack Obama was in London? I happened to be there working on a story. That, days that he was there doing this, and he told the British that if they voted to leave, they'd be essentially going to the back of a line on, on trade, and there was this yeah. huge uproar about how much he was interfering in British politics and shouldn't do it, and um, look how far our, our standard has moved uh, since that time. Yes, and it was, um, it, it was even um, suspected that the line had been supplied to Obama by David Cameron because he said you would go to the back of the queue, um, which is not the, a word that Obama would normally use. Right. Well, but doesn't he have to now, Evelyn, go off to, you know, Europe where, you know, and, the, you, know, you know, it's kind of strange. He's like publicly sitting there saying, well, why don't you screw the Europeans? Don't pay them their money get out of this terrible EU. And then he like gets on a plane and flies over there. And then it's like, Oh, well, hi guys. I mean, um, 
you know, none of what he's doing here is good for U.S.-U.K. relations, but it's also not good for U.S.-E.U. relations. Right, right. I mean, I, I think probably what world leaders are worried about with regard to his upcoming um, attendance at the D-Day commemorations is that he'll insult uh, some, you know, who is he going to insult next? I mean, if we recall last time, last year, um, I, I believe it was last year, this time, he refused to go out in the rain, you know. Um, so now we have the 75th anniversary. It should be a solemn occasion. He's not one to be particularly solemn. He's not one. A lot of op-ed uh, contributors I saw today and over the last couple of days have been writing about how he doesn't understand sacrifice. And of course, you know, the D-Day commemoration is all about sacrifice and you know, pointing out how we were united, not only as Americans within America of all different races um, and ethnicities, but also with our European brethren and with and the Asians who were fighting with us, you know, to to fight for our values and our interests and democracy. So um, this is not something that Trump does well at, you know, <laughs> talking about values and uniting people. And um, and so the I think for them, they're just worried, you know, who's he going to insult on his way, you know, as he's landing, as he did the, the mayor of London, and who's he going to insult when he's on the ground. I don't think there's much um, substance that they're paying attention to. Uh, of course, he can, he can, you know, wreck more, uh, I don't know, put his, his wrecking ball to the edifices of trade and national security. Um, he always has that capacity. But hopefully he's distracted enough by the fact that he's causing enough damage and turmoil in the stock markets and elsewhere with regard to our trade relationship with Canada, Mexico, and China. Well, was Interesting question, though, Evelyn, about whether he cares about that as much as we once thought he did. I think a month ago I would have said he wouldn't do anything that would threaten stock prices as he is heading into re-election. But, you know, with China and with Mexico... He's been perfectly willing to put up with the turmoil, at least in the short term. I, I don't know whether that he could sustain that over the long term. Well, I guess that's a question, David. I recall back in the day when actually when I first get got to know you, um, or shortly after that, you started writing, doing the economics beat, and 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 so you follow things like this. This Mexico trade policy is absolutely bananas. It does not benefit anybody in the United States. It has nothing to do with the immigration that he's trying to fix with it. Um, it had a very unhappy reaction from the market. Um, and, you know, people are, it, you know, it's one thing if you're in a bullish stock market, but Morgan Stanley uh, this week has already come out saying they're good for the first time since the Great Recession they're now projecting the market to, to start heading down. Um, and and if, if Trump loses the issue of the economy, um, given how narrowly he won the last time, that could be quite damaging, no? Uh, my view is it could it's it's the main thing he's got going for him in in the reelection campaign is to say, forget all the noise. The economy's done great. It's begun to reach down to people with ordinary jobs and ordinary industries, people doing construction and all that are 
all doing wonderfully and sharing in the benefits. And that's the strongest thing he has going for him right now. Um, the question, his base will believe he's standing up for America by imposing tariffs for something that traditionally we would have used either diplomatic pressure or sanctions for. Um, but uh, for everybody else, keeping the economy buoyant between now and uh, November of, of 2020 seems to be job one. And that makes you wonder how long he'll stick with these tariff lines if it looks like it's beginning to, to uh, destabilize the expansion. This episode of Deep State Radio is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of amazing classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography or creative writing to design, productivity, leadership, and more. So whether you're returning to a longtime passion project or you're challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone, or you're simply exploring something new, Skillshare has classes for you. Some of our folks here have actually taken the classes at Skillshare on things like iPhone photography, and I'm told, although not surprised, mixology, uh, and they've got several leadership courses in their queue. So I, I think we've found that these courses, which are taught by experts and are very professional, are also entertaining, they're very engaging, they take less than an hour, uh, and it can be a great tool for exploring new interests. So why don't you join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer that's just for Deep State Radio listeners. If you sign up right now, you can get two months for free. That's right, Skillshare is offering Deep State Radio listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, just go to Skillshare.com slash Deep State. That's Skillshare.com slash Deep State. And start your two free months right now. That's Skillshare.com slash Deep State. I, I also love the story that he, uh, with the support of Robert Lighthizer, proposed that we start tariffs against Australia, just like, you know, oh, there's an ally we haven't pissed off in a while. Um, and the State Department, Defense Department, you know, went crazy and, and stopped him from doing it. But I think it, that's what some people call the deep state, isn't it? The, well, whatever. Let's hear it for the deep the deep state. But, but um you know, it is it is sort of playing with fire as far as what he has going for him at the moment. Of course, Rosa, as we sort of shift the focus here a little bit, because uh, so many things are happening in the world, one of the big things that uh, Trump has going for him, of course, is his the quality of his team. Nowhere is this better uh, expressed than in his appointment of his son-in-law um, to be... Uh, a top advisor to handle Middle East peace. And uh, I don't know if you saw it. Did you see this interview with his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, that took place uh, yesterday? <laughs> Jared seemed a little ambivalent about his father-in-law in that <laughs> interview. <laughs> yeah, you mean the point where he said, I wouldn't have been, he couldn't have gotten me involved in this campaign if it wasn't for familial ties? I thought that's yeah, sort of like that. Like if I didn't, if, if I didn't have to support the asshole, I'd be out of here. Um, yeah, and I'm sure that 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 the the asshole didn't really appreciate that. Um, given given or or might want him to be out of there, um, given some of the other things that Kushner said, including 
that if the Russians approached him again, he wouldn't really know what to do about it, or he didn't want to deal with the hypothetical, even though theoretically he has a top secret clearance and actually has to report that if it were to happen again this time around. Um, and then, of course, there's maybe the whole thing. Nobody has, yeah, maybe nobody's given him a security briefing yet. Maybe he still needs to sit through his little security briefing where somebody explains that that basic principle to him. Yeah, and then, of course, you know, the, the ostensible reason for the, the this conversation is that, you know, he's in the midst of getting ready to unveil his Mideast peace plan, um, which looks like basically what they're trying to do is to get a bunch of money from the Gulf to give to the Palestinians to have the Palestinians accept the Israeli terms for peace, which to me does not sound like brilliant statecraft, but perhaps you see something in there that I'm missing. Uh, it sounds like bribery, which does occasionally work, but usually not for very long. Um, but but no, it, 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 I, I'm sure you all saw the reporting on uh, Mike Pompeo's meetings uh, with the Israelis in which Pompeo uh, uh, gave his assessment of the Middle East peace plan coming out of the Trump administration, in which he more or less acknowledged that this is probably a non-starter with everybody except for the Israelis. So it doesn't seem like it's likely to go very far. Again, not not a huge surprise here. I think the big question is whether they'll even introduce it, because you'll remember that they held it back because of the Israeli election. And then they said, well, it would come forward. Now the Israeli election is going into into a second round or a do-over. Um, I mean, I can't imagine they would want to go release this in the midst of it. Um, to be fair to, to Secretary Pompeo, and he was asked about this uh, yesterday on his trip, I think what he was saying, although I'm not sure that he articulated it quite as clearly as, as perhaps he now wishes he had, was that the perception of this deal is that there's very little in it for the Palestinians and lots in it for the Israelis, and that they're going to have to work hard to counter that perception. Now, he never addressed the question of whether the perception is accurate. <laughs> yeah, there, there is that. Now, Ed, you know, uh, David touches on something else I wanted to get to, um, which is I'm surprised we haven't heard Bibi Netanyahu adopt Trump's line of no do-overs, since it looks like Bibi now has to do a do-over which is going to throw Israeli politics into some bit of, of tumult for the next several months, um, uh, again, leading into our election. That's going to be a little tough, although some U.S. pundits have predicted this is just going to give Trump another chance to go in and you know, give anything Bibi wants to Bibi to show how much he, he will support him. Um, and I'm just wondering... How how destabilizing do you think this do-over looks? Well, this is his last throw of the dice, and it's not just his political career um, or his record of being the longest-running longest Israeli prime minister. He's, he's just about to overtake uh, Ben-Gurion. Um, it, it's, it's not just um, prolonging his prime ministership. It's about you know staying out of prison. Because remember one of the um, deals he was negotiating with putative coalition partners when those talks collapsed was to reinstate the, the law of um, immunity for members of the Knesset um, that was lifted for a former prime minister, Olmert, who, who was sent to jail, in fact. Um, so if, if he doesn't win this, he'll, he'll probably go to jail. 
Um, so Bibby, you know, who, who should never be underestimated, both in terms of his skill, tactical skill, but also of the fact that there are no limits ethically to, to where he will go in order to win. Um, he's going to be in a corner fighting like he never has before. And that, that sort of, I think, should be a deep cause for concern in terms of the regional situation, because the, the line that normally has served him well throughout his career is that he's a national security man. He's the one who will keep you safe. You might not like him. You might think he's crude. You might think he's corrupt even. Um, but he'll keep you safe. He'll keep Israelis safe. And Iran, you know, has played that role to a fault. Um, so I think, you know, given, given the, uh, the agendas of the Pompeos, the Boltons, the MBSs, the MBCs and others, um, uh, vis-a-vis Iran and Netanyahu's sort of desperate political straits here in what could be the end of his career, um, we should be particularly watchful of the Iran situation. Um, I don't think Trump wants to give, I don't think Trump wants to, to go to war with anybody. Um, I think he wants to get reelected um, and, and wars in the Middle East don't tend to help that cause. But um, Trump is not conducting this orchestra with any skill. Um, and if Bibi, Bibi knows anything. He knows how to create crises. Well, before I go to Evelyn, let me, let me go back to David to sort of follow up on your point there, Ed. Um, David, with regard to Iran, um, the U.S. policy seems to maybe have shifted or maybe it didn't. Um, whether there are terms for nego- conditions for negotiation or not. And I'm just wondering, since you follow this closely, what do you think the current state of play with regard to Iran is? Well, in, if you asked a year ago, at, right around the time that Secretary of State Pompeo delivered a speech at Heritage where he described the 12 things that Iran must do, which added up to essentially no longer acting the way Iran acts around the world and no longer... Uh, being a revolutionary state and and no longer supporting terrorism, no longer doing anything in the nuclear field, so forth and so on, you would have thought that until they do those things, the United States would not talk to them. Um, In the past week, it's become clear quite the contrary. In order to talk their way down from what everybody feared could be an imminent military clash, um, the president started saying, oh, we're willing to go negotiate. And basically, said to the Iranians, we're standing by the phone. And Secretary Pompeo sort of repeated that the other day and said there are no preconditions on negotiations. Um, So then the question is, so what's holding this up? Well, a few things. Um, Number one, the Iranians make the point, if you weren't willing to hold on to an agreement you had previously signed under a different administration, why should we negotiate now? Number two is the Iranians have a precondition, which is, Uh, The United States must return to the 2015 Iran deal, formerly known as the JCPOA, um, before they would go negotiate add-ons to that. So uh, everybody's sort of stuck, and it's not at all clear that the amount of pain that the U.S. has put on, on Iran, which has been considerable, is enough to make Iranian leaders go reconsider any of this before their own elections in 18 months. Um, yeah, well, that's a part of the shifting sands there in the region. Now, Evelyn, I was going to go to you and talk a little bit about um, the Russians, who you follow very closely, and what they're doing now in the Middle East. 
Um, we, the president was talking about new bombing that was taking place in Syria, and they're active there. Obviously, they've got a stake in this Iran um, case as well. Um, do, 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 you, do you see Russia being a problem for the U.S. achieving their goals in, in, in Iran and Iraq and, and Syria and this region, making things less stable over the course of the next several years or several months? Or do you see them as wanting to sort of keep a lid on things? I mean, the Russians, they are in the same place where they've been all along. They're spoilers. Uh, they have their objectives, which are more or less aligned with Bashar al-Assad's objectives. Um, uh, the only ones that they have that are different are basically to keep their presence, their 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 airfield and their port in Syria. Uh, but they base and of course their influence over Basad and whoever's in charge of Syria, which of course again that part aligns with with Assad at, at least for the moment. So those are the Russian objectives. Aside from that, they don't care that much. I mean, they, they, Iran is a partner of convenience for them in their efforts in Syria and elsewhere. They like to play in the nuclear game. I mean, many of the old, you know, foreign ministry statesmen, and they're mainly statesmen um, in Russia, continue to be proud of their background in nonproliferation and concerned about it. And they have some credibility there, although it's worn very, very thin. Um, these days. So they feel like they can still play in the game in terms of containing Iran and North Korea. In North Korea, I think they've pretty much given away any credibility by coming out in favor of loosening sanctions on North Korea, because that's the only way you're going to get North Korea back in the nuclear box, if there's even a chance of that. So there, I don't see the Russians as being um, getting being becoming more difficult than they are already, or less difficult. I think it's up to us to put the proper pressure on the Russians to work with us to contain Iran and to solve the, you know, put an end to the violence in Syria. But right now the Russians are going full bore with the bombing because the Russians and the Syrian regime want to consolidate control over the territory and the citizens of Syria. That means they have they for them it means that they have to bomb a bunch of civilians and kill more people and so they're trying to get Idlib in that corner the northeast corner of Syria under their control but ultimately for a real kind of stable political control and a solution that will always have some element of terrorism so it won't be 100% stable but nevertheless for something that's more durable they need the United States Turkey and other you know, opponents, if you will, in the Syrian context at the negotiating table. So the Russians can't solve anything. They can just cause problems and they're going to continue to do that. Hey, David, can I offer a corrective for something I said, as usual? Um, uh, I said that the Iranian election would be in 18 months. It's actually about two years. It would be just around this time in 2021, which means that the Iranian strategy here is basically to see if they can hold on and see whether President Trump is reelected. If he's not, they believe that uh, if he's replaced by a Democrat, that the Democrats would go back to something more like the 2015 deal. I'm not sure they necessarily would, but that's their that's their belief. So they think they may be able to wait this out. Well, speaking of elections, um, let me shift the focus slightly more domestically and go to our you know, sort of semi-weekly constitutional crisis weather report. Although I, I have to say, Rosa, 
I don't know that that, that we've um, we've had any big breaking news on that front um, because the Democrats seem to be just sort of backing away from any kind of confrontation uh, with the administration. Uh, and and as we are recording this, even you know, news has broken that the House Judiciary Committee. Um, has uh, decided that they're going to hold hearings on the Mueller report starting on June 10th, but they have not subpoenaed Mueller or anybody who worked for Mueller. And in fact, the star witness that they've called who seems to be getting the most attention in the first minutes after their announcement is is John Dean um, from the Nixon hearings, uh, which... (laughs) which, you know, is a little mind-boggling. Obviously, this is going to um, rock Nixon uh, and his supporters to their core. But um, uh, the Democrats, what's, I mean, how how do you read all this, that they're not even requesting that Robert Mueller come to talk in their hearings on the Mueller report? Well, so what the Democrats are are saying, um, at least what Adam Schiff is saying, is that they are, in fact, in active negotiations with Robert Mueller and his his people, his staff, to get him to testify voluntarily. um, And that when asked directly whether they would consider issuing a subpoena, uh, Schiff, Schiff hedged. He sort of said, we might get there, but we're not there yet. We would really like to see if we can work something out to have him come of his own free will. So I, so I, I, I don't think we can yet conclude that the Democrats have just given up on the idea of getting Mueller over there. Uh, I think I, I think it <laughs> wouldn't shock me if they eventually do give up on it, um, but I don't think they have yet. Um, I do think on our constitutional crisis watch, though, I, I have to admit that we got a, a step closer a couple of days ago when Judge Emmett Sullivan, um, the U.S. District Court in D.C., ordered the Justice Department to make public a lot of materials related to uh, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn's case, including all these transcripts of his conversations with Russian officials, and the Justice Department said no. Um, That's actually pretty shocking, right? When a federal judge says, you will release these. And the executive branch says, uh-uh. Um, and, you know, there's going to be a little bit more skirmishing here. I, I certainly think that that's the kind of thing that tends to really make judges mad um, when you don't comply with their orders. Um, there is going to be a little bit more skirmishing here. The Justice Department said, well, the reason we're not releasing them is we actually don't think that they're responsive and you made a mistake because you don't really mean we should release those because you're confused about what's in them. So we're not going to release them. And they're going to go back and forth on this for a little while. But that, to me, is a, a, in many ways a more ominous sign than what we've seen so far, right? Because what we've seen so far, the reason I always say this is we're a constitutional rot, not yet a constitutional crisis, is that the branches of government have been engaged in precisely the type of skirmishing that the Constitution, for better or for worse, imagines that they will engage in, which is, of course, goes to the other thing we've discussed frequently, why should we use the you know, why should we use a almost 250-year-old document as our yardstick for evaluating the health of our modern democracy anyway? But if that's our yardstick, uh, so far we have largely seen stuff that, while embarrassing, 
shameful, disgusting on multiple levels is not outside of the framework the Constitution created. On the other hand, as you start getting uh, one branch of government, you know, just ignoring a, a, a court order, that starts getting you close to constitutional standoff land. So we'll see how it gets resolved. But, but if, we, if we are inching asymptotically towards constitutional crisis, we are definitely getting a little closer. Rosa, can, I was a little confused when I heard the um, Justice Department's explanation the other day because they didn't invoke uh, any kind of executive privilege, and they didn't argue that national security would be compromised by releasing these, even though we know that they were gathered by the NSA in a tap on the, the Russian ambassador, which is not an uncommon thing. They just said it wasn't relevant. Why didn't they go for the, one of the easier explanations to avoid the, the appearance or the reality that they were just giving the stiff arm to the judge? It's a good question. I don't know the answer, but I think that either way, right, with any of those answers, um, what the judge presumably would immediately do is say, you know, I'll be the judge of that. You show it to me and I'll decide. Um, um, and he can do that with any of those answers. Right. Um, so I don't I, it's a good question. It seemed it seemed peculiar um, and it doesn't seem like uh, uh, it does not seem like Emmett Sullivan is, is the guy who's going to just let this go and say, OK, fine. You say it's not relevant. I'm sure I trust you. Well, Ed, you know, just sort of to bring this back full circle and as you observe this, coming as you do from England, a country known for polite understatement, who, who among your countrymen has gotten to the Democratic Party and persuaded them to be so polite and understated um, in facing this growing constitutional crisis? Every, every time the Republicans so, sort of say no or push back or say, screw you, they say, um, oh, oh, dear, dear me, please pass the tea. Sounds very British. They do. Um, you know, I think, um, I think that the Mueller statement the other day, you know, where he didn't say anything that he hadn't said before, but it was just him saying it um, on TV, um, shows the benefits, you know, given that most people are not going to read this report or come anywhere close to reading this report, um, uh, shows the benefits of TV. And so in their negotiations with Mueller, um, I very much hope the Democrats are pushing just for him to appear um, in public for public televised testimony and agreeing to, you know, relatively reasonable requests, not, not to politicize him too much, just get him to read excerpts from what he's already written, have it on TV, have him saying this election was systematically hijacked that nothing has been done since then to strengthen America's election infrastructure. Um, and uh, there the are 10 counts of um, uh, probable obstruction of justice by the president to cover up the inquiry into this. And through their questions, um, you know, they can, they can get um, Mueller to acquiesce in the fact that um, Trump is now calling on an investigation of the investigators. Um, you know, this is a remarkable situation that I think goes beyond the political calculations Democrats are making for next year. And we, you know, when you think of the example they always use, which is, well, look what happened to Clinton. Um, he came out of the impeachment process stronger than before with approval ratings higher. Uh, 
Well, maybe that was because it was a, a several-year investigation, beginning with a real estate deal in Arkansas and ending with a semen-stained dress. What is the parallel between that and the gravity, the sort of epic importance of what, um, uh, of, of what happened in 2016 and since then to, to U.S. democracy? They are chalk and cheese. They are completely different scale of inquiries. Um, and furthermore, if an impeachment process was begun, and you know, I hope they would stress this is a process, not an impeachment vote, this is a discovery process, then who knows what political impact um, uncovering, um, expediting the uncovering of Trump's tax returns, expediting the uncovering, uncovering of the Trump organization's financial records with Deutsche Bank and all these suspicious activity reports that were flagged up there, who knows what that would do to public opinion? Um, so e even, if, even if you were to take this very cautious, frightened of its own shadow or um, over English p politess from the Democratic Party at, at face value and say it's because they're scared of the politics, well, even, even on those grounds, um, who knows where the politics would lead? Um, but I would, argue, I would argue on grounds of principle and the integrity of the American Constitution um, that you've got to begin an impe impeachment process. You've got to begin an impeachment process. Well, it's interesting because the House Judiciary Committee specifically, you know, seems to be proceeding without, without even um, doing that. Um, I, we're, we're getting to the end of our time here. Um, and um, uh, I know that Evelyn will be with us for the next show we do. So I'm, I'm, I feel bad for not following up with a question for her. But, but I did want to sort of wrap this up because, you know, your, your comment, Ed, made me think of um, the work I've been doing in the past few weeks, finishing up this book I've been writing, which looks at the current moment from a historical perspective. Um, and so I'd like to ask a quiz question. Any of you could answer this quiz question. What was the first instance in U.S. history in which somebody called for a president to be impeached? And what president was it? I'm betting Washington, just out of a guess. Yeah, same, same. I mean, it's, it's always been around. But yeah, and so who did it? And David, you have, you, have an, uh, you, you have an unfair advantage. And Ed, you're correct. Um, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson called, his secretary of state called for him to be impeached because of his embrace of the Jay Treaty, ending the war with um, Great Britain. Um, oh, the good old days. The, the, yeah. good, the, the good old days. <laughs> Uh, this was in the midst of a time where uh, Hamilton was attacking Jefferson for his womanish attraction to France. Um, and, and in which um, shortly afterwards, the, the second secretary of state, um, uh, who was a protege of, of, of Jefferson's, was actually accused of spying for a foreign power the French, uh, confronted by Washington, and, who, and, and he quit on the spot. He walked right out of the office, not to regain um, public prominence again um, until he was one of the people defending um, Aaron Burr for Aaron Burr, the vice president under Jefferson's act of treason against the United States. Yeah. In, in other words, 
you know, this is pretty, pretty polite stuff that's going on here. Uh, and there's a deep, long tradition of battle yeah. like this. David, this is going to be a great memoir that you're publishing here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I should have seen that coming up. That way. Um, uh, and, uh, and it is. I, I remember getting to town on my horse way back then. Uh, uh, after having attended King's College with Alexander Hamilton. Um, but this is just, it puts it all in perspective. We think all of this stuff is new. Uh, and also the timidity about it is, is, is silly. You know, one of the things that has also come up in the Democratic Party recently is the idea of, well, impeachment's very rude. Maybe we should censure the president, um, which has happened once in American history. When was that, class? Hmm. We need Corey on this call. Uh, yeah, Johnson? a historian. You did. Johnson you, was impeached. You, yeah, but, but again, it's, your instincts are pretty good. Censure. Andrew, Andrew Jackson was the only president. Oh, um, uh, which Trump, of course. I was about to say, that's Trump's favorite president. So. Exactly. He would go, <laughs> yeah, I got one of those censure things, too. Where do I get, where's the trophy that goes with it? But in any event, uh, so... We've we've been we've been around this ground before. It's worth it's worth looking into that. Anyway, that's what I've been immersed in. Uh, guys, it is very uh, great pleasure to have you all with us, um, Ed and Rosa and Evelyn and David and Hi Corey off in Singapore, and um, everybody. Please, you know, join us again for some future uh, episodes of Deep State Radio. Our audience is growing and growing and growing uh, each week. You know, it's something like. 60, 70,000 downloads a week for Deep State Radio. That's not counting our other podcasts these days. And that's really good. And if you want to get some of those, go to the dsrnetwork.com uh, or uh, uh, find us where fine podcasts are given away. Although I'm told that Apple is blowing up iTunes. I wonder what all that means. Um, well, we shall see. Thank you, everybody. And uh, join us again soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.